sweeping the hearth and banking the coals, laying the fresh goat dung out to dry, adding more water to the salt pork soaking for dinner. As Marda sang, Miri chattered about nothing, never mentioning their pa's refusal to let her work. But gloom hung heavy on her like wet clothes, and she wanted to laugh and shake it off. Last week, I was passing by Bina's house, said Miri, and her ancient grandfather was sitting outside. I was watching him, amazed that he didn't seem bothered by a fly that was buzzing around his face, when smack, he squashed it right against his mouth. Marder cringed. But Marder, he left it there, said Mary. This dead fly stuck just under his nose, and when he saw me, he said, Good evening, miss, and the fly. <laughs> Mary's laughter cramped from trying to keep speaking through a laugh. The fly wobbled when he moved his mouth, and, and just then its little crushed wing lifted straight up as if it were waving hello to me too. <laughs> Marda always said she could not resist Miri's low, throaty laugh and defied the mountain itself not to rumble as well. But Miri liked her sister's laugh better than a belly full of soup. At the sound, her heart felt lighter. They chased the goats out of the house and milked the nannies in the tight chill of morning. It was cold on top of their mountain, in anticipation of winter, but the air was loosened by a breeze coming up from the valley. The sky changed from pink to yellow to blue with the rising sun, but Miri's attention kept shifting to the west and the road from the lowlands. I've decided to trade with Enric again, said Miri, and I'm set on wrestling something extra out of him. Wouldn't that be a feat? Marda smiled, humming. Miri recognised the tune as one the quarry workers sang when dragging stones out of the pit. Singing helped them to tug in rhythm. Maybe extra barley or saltfish, said Miri. Or honey, said Marda. Even better. Her mouth watered at the thought of hot, sweet cakes, honeyed nuts for a holiday, and a bit saved to drizzle on biscuits some bleak winter evening. At her past request, Miri had taken charge of trading for the past three years. This year, she was determined to get that stingy lowlander trader to give up more than he had intended. She imagined the quiet smile on Pa's face when she told him what she had done. I can't help wondering, said Marda, holding the head of a particularly grumpy goat while Miri did the milking. After you left, how long did the fly remain? At noon, Marda left to help in the quarry. Miri never spoke about this daily moment when Marda went and Miri stayed behind. She would never tell them how small and ugly she felt. Let them all believe I don't care, thought Miri, because I don't care. I don't. When Miri was eight years old, all the other children her age had started to work in the quarry, carrying water, fetching tools and performing other basic tasks. When she had asked her pa why she could not, he had taken her in his arms, kissed the top of her head, and rocked her with such love she knew she would leap across the mountain tops if he asked it. Then, in his mild, low voice, he had said, You are never to set foot in the quarry, my flower. She had not asked him why again. Miri had been tiny from birth, and at age 14 was smaller than girls years younger. There was a saying in the village that when something was thought to be useless, 
it was skinnier than a lowlander's arm. Whenever Miri heard it, she wanted to dig a hole in the rocks and crawl deep and out of sight. <laughs> Useless, she said with a laugh. It still stung, but she liked to pretend, even to herself, that she did not care. Miri led the goats up a slope behind their house to the only patches of grass still long. By winter, the village goats worked the hilltop grasses down to stubble. In the village itself, no green things grew. Rock debris was strewn and stacked and piled deeper than Miri could dig, and scree littered the slopes that touched the village lanes. It was the cost of living beside a quarry. Miri heard the lowlander traders complain, but she was accustomed to heaps of rock chippings underfoot, fine white dust in the air, and mallets beating out the sound of the mountain's heartbeat. Linda. It was the mountain's only crop, her village's one means of livelihood. Over centuries, whenever one quarry ran out of Linda, the villagers dug a new one, moving the village of Mount Eskel into the old quarry. Each of the mountain's quarries had produced slight variations on the brilliant white stone. They had mined Linda marbled with pale veins of pink, blue, green, and now silver. Miri tethered the goats to a twisted tree, sat on the shorn grass, and plucked one of the tiny pink flowers that bloomed out of cracks in the rocks. A Miri flower. The Linda of the current quarry had been uncovered the day she was born, and her father had wanted to name her after the stone. This bed of Linda is the most beautiful yet, he had told her mother. Pure white, with streaks of silver. But in the story that Miri had pulled out of her palm many times, her mother had refused. I don't want a daughter named after a stone, she had said, choosing instead to name her Miri, after the flower that conquered rock and climbed to face the sun. Pa had said that despite pain and weakness after giving birth, her mother would not let go of her tiny baby. A week later, her mother had died. Though Miri had no memory of it save what she created in her imagination, she thought of that week when she was held by her mother as the most precious thing she owned, and she kept the idea of it tight to her heart. Miri twirled the flower between her fingers, and the thin petals snapped off and dropped into the breeze. Folk wisdom said she could make a wish if all the petals fell in one twirl. What could she wish for? She looked to the east where the yellow-green slopes and flat places of Mount Eskel climbed into the grey-blue peak. To the north, a chain of mountains bounded away into forever, purple, blue, then grey. She could not see the horizon to the south, where somewhere an ocean unfolded, mysterious. To the west, the trader road that led to the pass and eventually to the lowlands and the rest of the kingdom. She could not imagine life in the lowlands any more than she could visualise an ocean. Below her, the quarry was a jangle of odd rectangular shapes, blocks half exposed, men and women working with wedges and mallets to free chunks from the mountain, levers to lift them out, and chisels to square them straight. Even from her hilltop, Miri could hear the chanting songs in the rhythms of the mallet, chisel and lever, the sounds overlapping, the vibrations stirring the ground where she sat. 
A tingle in her mind, and a sense of Dota, one of the quarry women, came with a faint command, Lighten the blow. Quarry speech. Miri leaned forward at the feel of it, wanting to hear more. The workers used this way of talking without speaking aloud so they could be heard despite the clay plugs they wore in their ears and the deafening blows of mallets. The voice of Quarry's speech worked only in the quarry itself, but Miri could sometimes sense the echoes when she sat nearby. She did not understand how it worked exactly, but had heard a quarry worker say that all their pounding and singing stored up rhythm in the mountain. Then, when they needed to speak to another person, the mountain used the rhythm to carry the message for them. Just now, Dota must have been telling another quarrier to lighten his strike on a wedge. How wonderful it would be, Mary thought, to sing in time, to call out in quarry speech to a friend working on another ledge, to share in the work. The Miri stem began to go limp in her fingers. What could she wish for? To be as tall as a tree, to have arms like her pa, to have an ear to hear the linda ripe for the harvest and the power to pull it loose. But wishing for impossible things seemed an insult to the Miri flower and a slight against the god who made it. For amusement, she filled herself with impossible wishes, her ma alive again, boots no rock shard could poke through, Honey instead of snow, to somehow be as useful to the village as her own pa. A frantic bleating pulled her attention to the base of her slope. A boy of fifteen pursued a loose goat through the knee-deep stream. He was tall and lean, with a head of tawny curls and limbs still brown from the summer sun. Pedder. Normally she would shout.